Chapter Two of the Night of the Long Knives by Fritz Leiber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Murder Most Foul, as in the best it is, but this most foul, strange, and unnatural. Hamlet. When I woke, the light was almost full amber, and I could feel no flesh against mine, only the blanket under me. I very slowly rolled over, and there she was, sitting on the corner of the blanket, not two feet from me, combing her long black hair with a big wide-tooth comb she'd screwed into the leather and metal cap over her wrist stump. She'd put on her pants and shirt, but the former were rolled up to her knees, and the latter, though tucked in, wasn't buttoned. She was looking at me, contemplating me, you might say, quite dreamily, but with a faint easy smile. I smiled back at her. It was lovely. Too lovely. There had to be something wrong with it. There was. Oh, nothing big, just a solitary trifle, nothing worth noticing, really. But the tiniest solitary things can sometimes be the most irritating, like one mosquito. When I'd first rolled over, she'd been combing her hair straight back, revealing a wedge of baldness following the continuation of her forehead scar deep back across her scalp. Now with the movement that was swift, though not hurried-looking, she swept the mass of her hair forward and to the left, so that it covered the bald area. Also her lips straightened out. I was hurt. She shouldn't have hidden her bit of baldness. It was something we had in common something that brought us closer. And she shouldn't have stopped smiling at just that moment. Didn't she realize I loved that blaze on her scalp just as much as any other part of her? That she no longer had any need to practice vanity in front of me? Didn't she realize that as soon as she stopped smiling, her contemplative stare became an insult to me? What right had she to stare, critically I felt sure, at my bald head? What right had she to know about the nearly healed ulcer on my left shin, that was a piece of information worth a man's life in a fight? What right had she to cover up, anyways, while I was still naked? She ought to have waked me up so that we could have got dressed as we'd undressed, together. There were lots of things wrong with her manners. Oh, I know that if I'd been able to think calmly, maybe if I'd just had some breakfast or a little coffee inside me, or even if there'd been some hot breakfast to eat at that moment, I'd have recognized my irritation for the irrational one-mosquito surge of negative feeling that it was. Even without breakfast, if I'd just had the knowledge that there was a reasonably secure day ahead of me, in which there'd be an opportunity for me to straighten out my feelings, I wouldn't have been irked, or at least being irked wouldn't have bothered me terribly. But a sense of security is an even rarer commodity in the Deathlands than a hot breakfast. Given just the ghost of a sense of security and or some hot breakfast, I'd have told myself that she was merely being amusingly coquettish about her ball streak and her hair that it was natural for a woman to try to preserve some mystery about herself in front of the man she beds with. But you get leery of any kind of mystery in the Deathlands. It makes you frightened and angry, like it does any animal. Mystery is for cultural queers, strictly. 
The only way for two people to get along together in the Deathlands, even for a while, is never to hide anything, and never to make a move that doesn't have an immediate, clear explanation. You can't talk, you see, certainly not at first, so you can't explain anything. Most explanations are just lies and dreams, anyway. So you have to be doubly careful and explicit about everything you do. This girl wasn't being either. Right now, on top of her other gaucheries, she was unscrewing the comb from her wrist. An unfriendly, if not quite a hostile act, as anyone must admit. Understand, please, I wasn't showing any of these negative reactions of mine any more than she was showing hers, except for her stopping smiling. In fact, I hadn't stopped smiling. I was playing the game to the hilt. But inside me everything was stewed up, and the other urge had come back, and presently it would begin to grow again. That's the trouble, you know, with sex as a solution to the problem of the two urges. It's fine while it lasts, but it wears itself out, and then you're back with urge number one, and you have nothing left to balance it with. Oh, I wouldn't kill this girl today. I probably wouldn't seriously think of killing her for a month or more. But old urge number one would be there, and growing, mostly under cover, all the time. Of course there were things I could do to slow its growth. Lots of little gimmicks, in fact. I was pretty experienced at this business. For instance, I could take a shot at talking to her pretty soon. For a catchy starter, I could tell her about nowhere, how these five other buggers and me found ourselves independently skulking along after this scavenging expedition from Porter, how we naturally joined forces in that situation, how we set a pitfall for their alky-powered jeep and wrecked it, and then how, when our haul turned out to be unexpectedly big, the four of us left from the kill chummied up and padded down together and amused each other for a while and played games, you might say. Why, at one point we even had an old crank phonograph going and read some books. And, of course, how when the loot gave out and the fun wore off, we had our murder party, and I survived along with, I think, a bugger named Jerry. At any rate, he was gone when the blood stopped spurting. And I'd had no stomach for tracking him, though I probably should have. And in return she could tell me how she had killed off her last set of girlfriends, or boyfriends, or friend, or whatever it was. After that we could have a go at exchanging news, rumors, and speculations about local, national, and world events. Was it true that Atlantic Highlands had planes of some sort, or were they from Europe? Were they actually crucifying the Deathlanders around Walla Walla? or only nailing up their dead bodies as dire warnings to other such. Had Manteno made Christianity compulsory yet, or were they still tolerating Zen Buddhists? Was it true that Los Alamos had been completely wiped out by plague, but the area taboo to Deathlanders because of the robot guards they left behind, metal guards eight feet tall, who tramped across the white sands wailing? Did they still have free love in Pacific Palisades? Did she know there'd been a pitched battle fought by expeditionary forces from Washita and Savannah Fortress? Over the loot of Birmingham, apparently, after Yellow Fever had finished off that principality. Had she rooted out any observers lately? Some of the civilized communities, the more scientific ones, 
try to maintain a few weather stations and the like in the Deathlands, camouflaging them elaborately and manning them with one or two imprudent characters to whom we give a hard time if we uncover them. Had she heard the tale that was going around that South America and the French Riviera has survived the last war absolutely untouched, and the obviously ridiculous rider that they had blue skies there and saw stars every third night? Did she think that subsequent conditions were showing that the earth actually had plunged into an interstellar dust cloud, coincidentally with the start of the last war? The dust cloud used as a cover for the first attack, some said? Or did she still hold with the majority that the dust was solely of atomic origin, with a little help from the volcanoes and dry spells? How many green sunsets had she seen in the last year? After we chewed over those racy topics, and some more like them, and incidentally got bored with guessing and fabricating, we might, if we felt especially daring and conversation was going particularly well, even take a chance on talking a little about our childhoods, about how things were before the last war, though she was almost too young for that, about the little things we remembered. The big things were much too dangerous topics to venture on, and sometimes even the little memories could suddenly twist you up as if you swallowed lie. But after that there wouldn't be anything left to talk about. Anything you'd risk talking about, that is. For instance, no matter how long we talked, it was very unlikely that we'd either of us tell the other anything complete or very accurate about how we lived from day to day, about our techniques of surviving and staying sane, or at least functional. That would be too imprudent. It would go too much against the grain of any player of the murder game. Would I tell her, or anyone, about how I worked the ruse of playing dead and disguising myself as a woman, about my trick of picking a path just before dark and then circling back to it by a pre-surveyed route, about the chess games I played with myself, about the bottle of green, terribly hot-looking powder I carried to sprinkle behind me to bluff off pursuers? A fat chance of my revealing things like that! And when all the talk was over, what would it have gained us? Our minds would be filled with a lot of painful stuff, better kept buried, meaningless hopes, scraps of vicarious living in cultured communities, memories that were nothing but melancholy given concrete form. The melancholy is easiest to bear when it's the diffused background for everything, and all garbage is best kept in the can. Oh, yes, our talking would have gained us a few more days of infatuation, of phantom security, but those we could have, almost as many of them at any rate, without talking. For instance, things were smoothing over already between her and me again, and I no longer felt quite so irked. She'd replaced the comb with an inoffensive-looking pair of light pliers, and was doing up her hair with the metal shavings and I was acting as if content to watch her, as, in a way I was, I'd still made no move to get dressed. She looked real sweet, you know, primping herself that way. Her face was a little flat, but it was young, and the scar gave it just the fillip it needed. But what was going on behind that forehead right now, I asked myself. I felt real psychic this morning. 
my mind, as clear as a bottle of white rock, you find miraculously unbroken in a blasted tavern, and the answers to the question I'd asked myself came effortlessly. She was telling herself she got herself a man again, a man who was adequate in the primal clutch, I gave myself that pat on the back, and that she wouldn't have to be plagued and have her safety endangered by that kind of mind-dulling restlessness and yearning for a while. She was lightly playing around with the ideas about how she'd found a home and a protector, knowing she was kidding herself, that it was the most jim-cracky feminine make-believe, but enjoying it just the same. She was sizing me up, deciding in detail what I went for in a woman, what whetted my interest, so she could keep that roused as long as seemed desirable or prudent to her to continue our relation. She was kicking herself, only lightly to begin with, because she hadn't taken any precautions, because we who've escaped hot death against all reasonable expectations by virtue of some incalculable resistance to the ills of radioactivity, quite often find we've escaped sterility too. If she should become pregnant, she was telling herself, then she had a real sticky business ahead of her, where no man could be trusted for a second. And because she was thinking of this, and because she was obviously a realistic Deathlander, she was reminding herself that a woman is basically less impulsive and daring and resourceful than a man, and so had always better be sure she gets in the first blow. She would be thinking that I was a realist myself, and a smart man, one able to understand her predicament quite clearly, and because of that a much sooner danger to her. She was feeling old number one urge starting to grow in her again, and wondering whether it mightn't be wisest to give it the hothouse treatment. That is the trouble with a clear mind. For a little while you see things as they really are, and you can accurately predict how they're going to shape the future. And then suddenly you realize you've predicted yourself a week or a month into the future, and you can't live the intervening time any more because you've already imagined it in detail. People who live in communities, even the cultural queers of our maimed era, aren't much bothered by it. There must be some sort of blinkers they hand you out along with the key to the city. But in the Deathlands it's a fairly common phenomenon, and there's no hiding from it. Me and my clear mind. Once again it had done me out of days of fun changed a thoroughly explored love affair into a one-night stand. Oh, there was no question about it. This girl and I were finished right this minute, as of now, because she was just as psychic as I was this morning, and had sensed every last thing that I'd been thinking. With a movement smooth enough not to look rushed, I swung into a crouch. She was on her knees faster than that her left hand hovering over the little set of tools for her stump, which, like any good mechanic, she lined up neatly on the edge of the blanket. The hook, the comb, a long telescoping fork, a couple of other items, and the knife. I'd grabbed a handful of blanket, ready to jerk it from under her. She'd seen that I grabbed it. Our gazes dueled. There was a high-pitched whine over our heads quite loud from the start, though it sounded as if it were very deep up in the haze. It swiftly dropped in pitch and volume. The top of the skeletal cracking plant across the freeway 
glowed with St. Elmo's fire. Three times it glowed that way, so bright we could see the violet-blue flames of it reaching up despite the full amber daylight. The wine died away, but in the last moment, paradoxically, it seemed to be coming closer. This shared threat for any unexpected event is a threat in the Deathlands, and a mysterious event, doubly so, put a stop to our murder game. The girl and I were buddies again, buddies to be relied on in a pinch, for the duration of the threat at least. No need to say so, or to reassure each other of the fact in any way it was taken for granted. Besides, there was no time. We had to use every second allowed us in getting ready for whatever was coming. First I grabbed up Mother. Then I relieved myself. Fear made it easy. Then I skinned into my pants and boots, slapped in my teeth, thrust the blanket and knapsack into the shallow cave under the edge of the freeway, looking around me all the time so as not to be surprised from any quarter. Meanwhile the girl had put on her boots, located her dart gun, unscrewed the pliers from her stump, put the knife in, and was arranging her scarf so it made a sling for the maimed arm. I wondered why, but had no time to waste guessing, even if I'd wanted to, for at that moment a small dull silver plane, beetle-shaped more than anything else, loomed out of the haze beyond the cracking plant, and came silently drifting down toward us. The girl thrust her satchel into the cave, and along with it her dart-gun. I caught her idea and tucked Mother into my pants behind my back. I'd thought from the first glimpse of it that the plane was disabled. I guess it was its silence that gave me the idea. This theory was confirmed when one of its very stubby wings, or vanes, touched a corner pillar of the cracking plant. The plane was moving in too slow a glide to be wrecked. In fact, it was moving in a slower glide than I would have believed possible, but then it's many years since I have seen a plane in flight. It wasn't wrecked, but the little collision spun it around twice in a lazy circle, and it landed on the freeway with a scuffing noise not fifty feet from us. You couldn't exactly say it had crashed in, but it stayed at an odd tilt. It looked crippled, all right. An oval door in the plane opened, and a man dropped lightly out on the concrete. And what a man! He was nearer seven feet tall than six, close-cropped blond hair, face and hands richly tanned, the rest of him covered by trim garments of a gleaming gray. He must have weighed as much as the two of us together. But he was beautifully built, muscular yet supple-seeming. His face looked brightly intelligent, and even tempered and kind. Yes, kind, damn him! It wasn't enough that his body should fairly glow with a health and vitality that was an insult to our seared skins and stringy muscles and ulcers and half-rotted stomachs and half-arrested cancers. He had to look kind, too. The sort of man who would put you to bed and take care of you, as if you were some sort of interesting sick fox, and maybe even say a little prayer for you and all manner of other abominations. I don't think I could have endured my fury standing still. Fortunately, there was no need to. As if we'd rehearsed the whole thing for hours, the girl and I scrambled up onto the freeway and scurried toward the man from the plane cunningly swinging away from each other, so that it would be harder for him to watch the two of us at once. But not enough to make it obvious that we attended an attack from two quarters. 
We didn't run, though we covered the ground as fast as we dared. Running would have been too much of a giveaway, too, and the pilot, which was how I named him to myself, had a strange-looking small gun in his right hand. In fact, the way we moved was part of our act. I dragged one leg as if it were crippled, and the girl faked another sort of limp, one that made her approach a series of half-curtsies. Her arm in the sling was all twisted, but at the same time she was accidentally showing her breasts. I remember thinking, you won't distract this breed bull that way, sister. He probably has a harem of six-foot heifers. I had my head thrown back, and my hands stretched out supplicatingly. Meanwhile the both of us were babbling a blue streak. I was rapidly croaking something like, Mr. For God's sake, save my pal. He's hurt a lot worse than I am. Uh, not a hundred yards away he's dying, Mr. He's dying of thirst. His tongue's black and all swole up. Oh, save him, Mr. Save my pal. He's not a hundred yards away. He's dying, Mr. Dying. And she was sing-songing an even worse rigmarole about how they were after us from Porter and going to crucify us because we believed in science, and how they'd already impaled her mother and her ten-year-old sister, and a lot more of the same. It didn't matter that our stories didn't fit or make sense. The babble had a convincing tone, and getting us closer to this guy. Which was all that counted. He pointed his gun at me, and then I could see him hesitate, and I thought exultingly, it's a lot of healthy meat you got there, mister, but it's tame meat, mister, tame. He compromised by taking a step back and sort of hooting at us and waving us off with his left hand, as if we were a couple of stray dogs. It was greatly to our advantage that we'd acted without hesitation, and I don't think we'd have been able to do that except that we'd been all set to kill each other when he dropped in. Our muscles and nerves and minds were keyed for instant ruthless attack, and some civilized people still say that the urge to murder doesn't contribute to self-preservation. We were almost close enough now, and he was stealing himself to shoot, and I remember wondering for a split second what his damn gun did to you, and then me and the girl had started the alternation routine. I'd stopped dead, as if completely cowed by the threat of his weapon and as he took note of it she'd go in a little further, and as his gaze shifted to her she'd stop dead, and I'd go in another foot, and then try to make my halt even more convincing as his gaze darted back to me. We worked it perfectly. Our rhythm was beautiful, as if we were old dancing partners, though the whole thing was absolutely impromptu. Still I honestly don't think we'd ever have got him if it hadn't been for the distraction that came just then to help us. I could tell, you see, that he'd finally steeled himself, and we still weren't quite close enough. He wasn't as tame as I'd hoped. I reached behind me for mother, determined to do a last-minute rush and leap anyway, when there came this sick scream. I don't know how else to describe it briefly. It was a scream, feminine for choice. It came from some distance, and the direction of the old cracking plant. It had a note of anguish and warning, yet at the same time it was weak and almost faltering, you might say, and squeaky at the end, as if it came from a person half-dead and a throat choked with phlegm. It had all those qualities, or a wonderful mimicking of them. And it had quite an effect on our boy in gray, for in the act of shooting me down he started to turn and look over his shoulder. Oh, it didn't altogether stop him from shooting me. 
He got me partly covered again as I was in the middle of my lunge. I found out what his gun did to you. My right arm, which was the part he'd covered, just went dead, and I finished my lunge slamming up against his iron knees like a high school kid trying to block out a pro footballer, with the knife slipping uselessly away from my fingers. But in the blessed meanwhile the girl had lunged too, not with a slow slash, thank God, but with a high slicing thrust, aimed arrow straight for a point just under his ear. She connected, and a fan of blood sprayed her full in the face. I grabbed my knife with my left hand as it fell, scrambled to my feet, and drove the knife at his throat. In a roundhouse swing that happened to come handiest at the time, the point went through his flesh like nothing, and jarred against his spine with a violence that I hoped would shock into nervous insensibility the stoutest medulla obligata and prevent any dying reprisals on his part. I got my wish, in large part. He swayed, straightened, dropped his gun, and fell flat on his back, giving his skull a murderous crack on the concrete for good measure. He lay there, and after a half-dozen gushes the bright blood quit pumping strongly out of his neck. Then came the part that was like a dying reprisal, though obviously not being directed by him as of now, and, come to think of it, it may have had its good points. The girl, who was clearly a most cool-headed cuss, snatched for his gun where he dropped it, to make sure she got it ahead of me. She snatched, yes, and then jerked back letting off a sizable squeal of pain, anger, and surprise. Where we'd seen his gun hit the concrete, there was now a tiny incandescent puddle. A rill of blood snaked out from the pool around his head, and touched the whitely glowing puddle, and a jet of steam sizzled up. Somehow the gun had managed to melt itself in the moment of its owner dying. Well, at any rate, that showed it hadn't contained any gunpowder or ordinary chemical explosives, though I already knew it operated on other principles from the way it had been used to paralyze me. More to the point, it showed that the gun's owner was the member of a culture that believed in taking very complete precautions against its gadgets falling into the hands of strangers. But the gun-fusing wasn't quite all. As the girl and me shifted our gaze from the puddle, which was cooling fast and now glowed red like the blood, as we shifted our gaze back from the puddle to the dead man, we saw that at three points—points points over where you'd expect pockets to be—his gray clothing had charred in small, irregularly shaped patches, from which threads of black smoke were twisting upward. Just at that moment so close as to make me jump, in spite of years of learning to absorb shocks stoically. Right at my elbow it seemed to—the girl jumped too, I may say—a voice said, "'Done a murder, eh?' Advancing briskly around the skewed, grounded plain from the direction of the cracking plant was an old geezer, a seasoned, hard-baked Deathlander if ever I saw one. He had a shock of bone-white hair, the rest of him that showed from his weathered gray clothing looked fried by the sun's rays and others to a stringy crisp, and strapped to his boots and weighing down his belt were a good dozen knives. Not satisfied with the unnerving noise he made already, he went on brightly. Neat job, too. I give you credit for that. But why the hell did you have to set the guy afire? End of chapter 2